This is the Monday, November 28th, 2016 episode of The History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Completely ignoring the fact that most people who left Germany had done so to get away from things like Hitler, he sprang his pet theory that every person of German blood, no matter where he lived, belonged to the Nazi Reich. Germans are descendants of Germans, often with no more than a drop of German blood in their veins, suddenly learned that they were godlike. According to the Nazis, the German was a special creature who remained forever German to the sixth and seventh generation and must take his orders from Berlin. Some people we know of German descent think this is a lot of hogwash. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine touches down during Adolf Hitler's regime in Germany to answer a big question. How? How did this failed Austrian-born painter, a little-noticed corporal in the Great War, persuade the German people in droves, not just to back his rise, but to follow him into the abyss of total war? The usual answers are charisma and a ruthless stamping out of all dissent. The rule of the gun, so to speak. But here on the show, we always seek out a fuller picture of the few lines we get in most history books, concepts that get repeated and re-repeated by generations of historians and that then we start to see in novels and fictional movies like The Guns of Navarone. But what was it really like to live under Hitler in the Reich? Well, Nathan Stoltzfus answers that question for us, challenging the traditional view of this demagogue's execution of power with a fresh look. The resulting book is Hitler's Compromises, Coercion and Consensus in Nazi Germany. In contrast to the many books solely about Hitler's rise to power, Hitler's Compromises focuses on the exercise of that power. How did he get the German people to go along with it? Of course, to point out that Hitler compromised and made deals with the people he wanted to rule to bring along to National Socialism is not to say we're seeing him as any less evil nor does it trivialize his heinous crimes against humanity itself. Rather, it helps us understand how Hitler was able to achieve more evil by using a range of tactics in his quiver. It's not solely brutality and terror he counted on at home, even though that's what we've come to expect. Professor Stoltzfus received his PhD in modern European history from Harvard in 1993 and is the Dorothy and Jonathan Rintels Professor of Holocaust Studies at Florida State University. His previous books include Social Outsiders in Nazi Germany and Protest in Hitler's National Community, Popular Unrest in the Nazi Response, and Resistance of the Heart. You can follow him on Twitter at Nate underscore Stoltzfus 
That last name is spelled S-T-O-L-T-Z-F-U-S. Okay, now that we've arrived in Germany as the lights of liberty dim, let's join Professor Stoltzfus and hear about Hitler's Compromises. I'm joined on the line by Professor Nathan Stoltzfus, author of Hitler's Compromises, Coercion and Consensus in Nazi Germany. Thank you for making time to talk with the History Author Show. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Now, this book was so fascinating that we almost jumped right into the interview before we let the listeners in on the conversation. (laughs) This idea of Hitler as a compromiser That's a lot of heavy lifting in the title, Hitler's Compromises. I think most of us read that and we say, well, how's that even possible? It seems like an oxymoron. Then you read the book and you say, this is a different Hitler. This is a Hitler that we haven't heard about for 80 years. And it's important to understand what his goals were, what his real strategies were. It's not enough to just assume all the things we've learned for, what is it, 80 years now, 70, 80 years since his rise to power. Soon, in the blink of an eye, it'll be 100. So we have to look at it accurately, and your book does that, and I love to be told I'm wrong in history. (laughs) Tell us what the reaction has been, though, from other historians and other people, even readers, that your book stands so starkly in contrast to established narratives. It's been good. You know, the nature of research and uh, scientific research is to continuously find new things or to build on the mosaic. And I'm not tossing out other explanations for Hitler's power. Certainly, there have been very important ones, his charisma, Hitler as the seducer, of course, the brute, ruthless enforcer, the propagandist, or incentives, various incentives, material benefits have been talked about as how Hitler leads. And of course, compromise as well has been acknowledged easily in terms of foreign policy. Hitler didn't have to become a communist to sign the pact with Stalin, just to be a deceiver. So what we're talking about is compromise in a way that aligns with Hitler's goals and ideology. It's just that it doesn't align completely with the image of Hitler as a raging carpet biter who is unable to think straight or at least strategically. And and I contend that he does think strategically and that he does compromise not just in foreign policy, but with his German people themselves because he really wants to do something with the German people. He has something in mind for them. He thinks they're essential for his exercise of power. It's almost a deconstruction of this urge, especially since now we are looking way back. It's easy to romanticize the battles. It's easy to say, get me to El Alamein or get me to Stalingrad or get me to D-Day. That's something you can really understand. The politics of it, I think maybe people say, well, okay, he was a dictator. We've seen dictators before. We know what they do. They shoot everyone who disagrees and they just then mobilize a war machine and push forward. And that's not the case here. When I'm reading Hitler's compromises and I'm saying yeah. he is trying to build something bigger. And one thing that it made me think of was listeners have heard me do the interview on the Winter Fortress. They will hear me do the interview with Tim Boyce of From Day to Day, a Norwegian in a concentration camp, Ad Nansen. And 
one of the ways that they treat the Norwegians under occupation, you'd never call it a benevolent occupation under the Nazis, certainly, but they treat the Norwegians sort of as these wayward Nordic people, and they do succeed in persuading some Norwegians to come over to their side. Certainly, obviously, Kvisling, they convince him to come over to their side and support them. This is kind of how he looks at people. He's building a thousand-year Reich that's by definition going to outlive him. So he wants to change it to a thoroughly Nazi state, just as he changes the German flag to the Nazi flag. That's a symbol of it, isn't it? Right, right. That's a good example. Your examples of the Norwegians and of the flag and changing it to a swastika without the eagle, changing it to a swastika. Hitler was a politician. That's also something you indicated, and that's important. How did he become the dictator? It might be fine to assume that once he's a dictator, he has all of this power. Even then, you have to ask, why are people following his orders somewhere? You have to have people who are convinced you know, of ideology or maybe that their interests lie, like Quisling, perhaps, in following Hitler. So the first question is, how did he become this dictator, this homeless waif in shelters and skid rows of Vienna? before World War One, and even during World War One, how he distinguishes himself so little in military terms. And so we have a tremendous task that doesn't have to do with how a dictatorship handles opposition, just to explain how, how Hitler came to power. So he was a politician in order to take power. And beyond that, of course, he also wanted to be a politician. He, he didn't want to just be someone who had authority by actually shooting, cutting down, cutting off. That is, he did outside of his own people. Of course, with Jews in particular, there we see his capacity to become ever more brutal. But with his own people, with his own race, with Germans within the Reich, these constitute a basis of power. Hitler didn't think he could go forward without them. He couldn't achieve his aims without them. And of course, the more he could convince them that he was right, the more they would expend on his behalf. The short-term goal, of course, was just to win the war, the shorter term. The longer-term goal was the establishment of a thousand-year Reich or permanent national socialism. And that, too, would be done only, I think Hitler thought, with the Nazi society. The shorter-term goals, it was fine. Of course, practicing Nazism, behaving like a Nazi was fine. Inwardly being a Nazi, totally, uh, you know, the way Goebbels said it in 1935 was that we wouldn't have to talk about Nazism in the future because it would be the air we breathe. People would assume, take it for granted. It would be every day. People would act like Nazis when nobody was looking. So this was the goal that the Nazis had as unachievable or as breathtakingly fantastic as it seems. Lay out some examples for us. I've read the books. As I said, I've, I've seen them and I had a lot of eureka moments or just a lot of unbelieving moments. So give us an example of some of these compromises that Hitler did when I think we would just imagine that's a moment when he brings out the guns or sends in the stormtroopers. Exactly. Stormtroopers in 1923, of course, tried to bring Hitler to power with a coup d'etat. It failed. And after that, the stormtroopers wanted to have another coup d'etat on Hitler consistently and uh, said no. 
he was very concerted in having to say no. There was a lot of pressure to try another coup d'etat. And it's because he did want to start to build a mass movement. The Weimar system of government allowed him actually to, to not only build up popularity, but to show others through this legitimate system that he was actually building up popularity fast. He had a lot of momentum. Now, an early compromise in the Third Reich is in 1934. Hitler had dreamed of constructing a, a national church, a Reich church, much like Henry VIII in England had established a Protestant church. And Hitler thought that uh, if he could just get all the Protestants in Germany aligned under one bishop, then he would have a centralized form of control. That bishop would, of course, be answering to him. And there were 28 Protestant bishops in Germany. By 1934, 26 supported this Reich church. Hitler had already selected a bishop. And two bishops held out. Now, the reason that this is important is because the churches, of course, had the kind of allegiance and following that Hitler himself wanted. He wanted to change their allegiance, switch them, transition them over to his own ideology and to himself without any other authorities they were paying attention to. Now, when the churches in 1934, the two bishops and their churches refused, the bishops actually used their pulpits to emphasize the importance of their independence from a Reich church. There weren't any theological issues here, really. The protests and the dissent arose to such a level that the authorities finally put these two bishops under house arrest, starting with that. But this led to an increase in protests that people began gathering outside of the bishops' houses and having church services. And this got to be uh, reached such proportions that the regional leaders couldn't manage it. They appealed to Hitler. Hitler simply released them from house arrest and restored them to their diocese as bishops. There are several other examples uh, going forward, not just involving the church, but uh, a judge and women. One that comes to mind uh, nine years later during the war was the German effort to evacuate civilian populations from cities that were being bombed, like any other government at war, it wanted to remove civilians from danger to places of safety. And women who had been removed because they were not contributing to the war economy, their husbands were still there in the city working in the war industry, they returned to their homes, to their families, to places they were familiar with. They weren't staying in these evacuation sites like the Nazis had regulated that they must do. So one regional official decided to issue these women their food ration cards only at their evacuation sites. When they came to get their food ration cards, in the cities that were being bombed, they weren't available. And 300 women, this is according to a secret police report, which is quite detailed, 300 women came out and protested in Adolf Hitler Square in the city of Witten in the Ruhr area. And this protest spread to a couple other cities the next day. And these women got their way temporarily. And Hitler was not called in yet. Goebbels was deciding what to do. 
he wrote in his diary in November 1943 that the people are finding out how they can actually manipulate the regime by going on the street. He's very explicit about that in early November 1943 in his diaries. But when he took this to Hitler, the reason he took it to Hitler is because these regional officials, the Gauleiters, disagreed about whether they should be using even this small amount of coercion, even this soft form of coercion, manipulating the people by manipulating the food rations. Well, Hitler in January 44 ruled very clearly, no, you cannot do that. It's not the appropriate means. The appropriate means is education. This was Hitler already in January 1944. He had always stressed that the job of dealing with the people themselves, the Aryan, the racial Germans, was education. That is, it didn't matter if people were cooperating based on deception. It didn't matter if the rug was being slipped out from under them and they didn't notice it. It might happen then that they find themselves situated nicely and they realize that their new carpet is better than the previous one. That's what he hoped. It didn't matter how these regional leaders got their people along just so that they were happy and above all that they weren't expressing this dissent openly. Again, there were two different levels for the reasons that Hitler wanted to avoid this dissent. The first one was he was building up his movement and it kept gathering speed. One of Hitler's principles was that this movement forward, that is the growing numbers of people who joined the movement, who were committed believers, had to keep growing. It couldn't stop. Maybe it would start reversing. He was afraid if it started reversing, it would maybe unravel. After all, look how quickly he had gotten to power through a movement. And so that was one reason he wanted to avoid dissent, because he didn't want any, any appearance of dissent. He wanted everybody who was dissenting to appear to be alone and to not have any place to uh, get a foothold with others. Secondly, of course, is this longer-term goal of establishing a thousand-year Reich. This was real. Hitler had in mind actually turning society into a Nazi society, and this would be the basis. In essence, this would be his successor. The people himself as Nazis would guarantee that they would, from generation to generation, pass down the Nazi values and habits. You have a metaphor in the book, and I've heard you speak about this. Folks can go hear some more from you on YouTube. You describe Hitler as a dance partner, leading his partner, in this case, the German people. And this also has a reflection in the idea of him trying to take over the church. The people of the church are often referred to as the bridegroom of Christ. And he wants to, he wants to be the new one cutting in there and saying, well, I already have this established. You're not going to convince these old house frows maybe to give up their religion, but I can weasel my way in there and lead them. And for me, as I'm listening to you speak about that and staring at this Hitler as dancer idea on the question, I thought of my time as a veterinary technician, which may seem way out of left field, but I remember a, a veterinarian telling me when I was just starting and we were restraining a cat, you know, you need to take blood, you need to do whatever you need to do. Sometimes they really don't like it. And he said, 
by brute force, you'll never stop the cat. I mean, they're just too, they're just too elastic. They'll stay. They have too many places. They're sharp. And he said, but you need to just move with them just enough that they think they're still independent and they're controlling it, but you're getting them to do what they want. And that kind of cat wrangling, for lack of a better word, it's kind of what Hitler is doing here. That's fascinating because Hitler actually uses a feline uh, metaphor in 1943. I think it was one of his eastern officials in charge of occupying some vast tract of land in the Baltics. It was actually Rosenberg. Rosenberg says we only have one German for every 50,000 people we're trying to control. And Hitler says you've got to have that psychological something that the lion trainer has. Hmm. So that's an essential aspect here that Hitler doesn't expect to just frontally take on with brute force every opposition. He wants to be a little bit clever. Another metaphor you used, I think, was of Jesus and the impact he's had on history. I think Hitler perhaps consciously thought of himself as a figure who would change history as much as Christianity had. Certainly Christianity was his main opponent in terms of ideology, in terms of commitments, in terms of allegiances, and also of organization. I came up with another metaphor, rather a way to illustrate this metaphor, for your deconstruction of the flawed image that most of us, I would say, have until we read Hitler's compromises. And that's this idea of him as just this stern, angry, ready to shoot anybody on sight for the smallest insult or smallest infraction. This has been distilled down in Seinfeld to the character of the soup Nazi, which I don't want to seem glib to anybody, but we discussed it before. That's the popular image right now. We've sort of just made a stern man selling soup as the soup Nazi. So, how would Hitler in reality have managed a restaurant as compared to the sort of two-dimensional soup Nazi there, do it my way, get in line, or you're out? <laughs> yes. Well, uh, that's a good metaphor, too. And it's a very unwieldy image, really, Hitler as a dance partner. And Hitler <laughs> was very uh, conscious of how he appeared in public. There is purported video of him actually dancing when France surrenders. I think he took a couple rapid steps in succession. And I also don't want to, of course, make Hitler appear harmless. And I'm sure you don't either. It's just that he's a politician and realizes that this brute force and shooting people is not what will work in every instance for every uh, purpose he has. Of course, there were people who had very bad luck, I think, in the sense that they weren't really that representative who did die for very minor infractions uh, were executed. I've read about people dying for telling a joke about Hitler or something. And of course, the kinds of compromises I'm talking about are not the kinds of compromises that Hitler makes with any old individual. There is an individual I'd like to talk about at some point who Hitler really compromised because he had so much popularity and because he represented opinions of so many people and because he actually had the capacity to influence opinion. But getting to the soup Nazi, this is interesting. Yes, I think that the Nazi now stands for just somebody who slaps down anyone who doesn't go along and, and is totally arbitrary, totally uninterested in the politics of his actions. And no bread for you. No bread for kind you. Of thing, but it was more right. the Hitler in your book, in Hitler's Compromises, I mean, he's somebody who 
isn't just telling you to get the heck out of my restaurant. He's somebody who's saying, well, these are people that I have to feed. And he, in fact, there's one case in the book where he even refuses to use food. He doesn't want to use rations as a way to get those women to evacuate and stay evacuated, stop trying to go back and forth. That's how people picture him, but he's not. He's compromising with the German-blooded people, and we want to make that distinction. As we said, certainly in a place like Greece, this was not a very benevolent uh, occupation by the Germans and mm-hmm. the, everybody else. And then there was the the Aryan people, his ideal that he uh, imagined or that focused on. And he does that as a way to try and get the Volk to maintain their confidence in him. You use an interesting phrase for Hitler's policies on the intermediate married Gentiles and Jews, promiscuously opportunistic. So this is something, again, a eureka moment, something I did not know. I would have thought that that would earn you a a bullet in the head or husbands and wives being torn apart. How did he confront that challenge to his anti-Semitic ideology? That's a good question. And going back to an early part of your uh, statement, of course, the provisioning of the Germans at such a high level could only happen by utter exploitation of the others and the hundreds of thousands dying in in Athens alone. For example, just like locusts, the Germans were pillaging everywhere they went just to provision their own at the expense of anyone else. But even in terms of uh, the Jewish population, Hitler was able to compromise The Nuremberg Laws themselves showed why it was necessary. Others who had had an idea that they should just expel all the Jews always ran against a difficulty where Jews had intermarried, where there were some people who were part Jewish and part Gentile. So right away, the black and white worldview that Hitler is um, purporting runs into trouble, right? And the Nuremberg Laws have to deal with how many of these people who are, are partly Gentile and partly Jewish are we going to treat as Jews eventually expel from the country? The Nazi ideology is absolutely clear. Any drop of Jewish blood is going to screw up people so that they are not good German-blooded people. Some Nazis are even saying these people are particularly unreliable and dangerous if they have mixed blood. Hitler himself at one point talks about how long it will take a drop of Jewish blood to mendel out of German society and thinks it will be more than six generations. I don't know how he gets to that. but So the ideology is clear, but the politics are in stages. The first definition of Jews applied to 1933, the law for the restoration of the civil service that expelled all non-Aryans, anybody who had just one grandparent was considered Jewish. Two years later, with the Nuremberg Laws, the definition was anybody with three or more grandparents who were Jewish and two grandparents who were Jewish and two who were not Jewish. Then it depended on whether you had joined the Jewish community or had married a Jew. In other words, these were no longer racial criteria used to apply an ideology that was only about race. So the compromise is necessary because of intermarriage. As the regime goes on, it makes further and further compromise to accommodate these families that include 
Jews and non-Jews. So take me to the shoes of somebody who has a Jewish wife and they're a Gentile or a half Jewish husband. And mm-hmm. you remember the Lutheran church, let's say, and, and this is your spouse it has a okay. Jewish parent. What happens? What, is, what do they come and do to you? What is their, see, I'm already doing it. It's so ingrained. What do they do to you? What, what is the offer? What is the compromise? What is the sugar here to try and get you to come back in line as a good German in Hitler's view? Well, okay, so there were incentives or cajoling as well as threats. I talked to one of these half-Jews, as the Nazis called them. His mother was a Gentile, his father was Jewish, and he said that the Gestapo came to his mother and said that if she divorces, they'll make him into this half-Jew into an excellent Aryan and send him off to the best military school so that he'll... uh, come out at the top in the military is actually a fact that his father had served with high distinction in World War I, so that there were these kinds of offers of immunity from being treated as a Jew. In fact, here is another important example of Hitler's compromises. There were, I think, two or three hundred people I'm not sure about the number, but there were certainly uh, dozens, a significant number of Jews Hitler declared were Aryan. He would actually sign a certificate and they could carry this around so that they would be identified as Aryans rather than as Jews. Unbelievable. And you wonder, I wonder anyway, how these are things that we just haven't heard. Now, I can't imagine a literal get out of the concentration camp free card. Again, not to make light of it, quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. Uh, The idea that this would be the case. It just shows how arbitrary, and it Mm. also makes the point here that this is not a Stalin. Right. I should say that these were very limited cases, and Hitler turned them off where he actually discontinued the practice. You had to have served the party, the Nazi party, in an extraordinary way as a Jew without knowing you were Jewish in order to get this so-called honor from Hitler. So maybe part of the reason we don't hear about it is that maybe it's considered to be such an aberration that it's not important. But together with other examples of Hitler's compromises, it is significant because because it shows that, that Hitler's a politician and involved with these political decisions. You write in Hitler's compromises, quote, Hitler found loyal and pliant adjuncts easily enough. But he also knew how to shape the behavior of those under him without Stalin-like purges. Now, in the wake of something like Valkyrie, we know that Hitler was not above a bullet in the back of the head for Germans. You get the choice of cyanide or disgrace in the case of Erwin Rommel. So compare the strategy of the two dictators, Stalin and Hitler. Yeah, I think the basis for the difference, the great difference is National socialism is based on race, and of course, Stalin's communism is based on class. And any society, you have various classes. So you have the enemy built in actually in larger numbers. Whereas in national socialism, the notion is that you have, you know, well over 90% of the people, Jews representing less than 1% of the population who are outsiders, the vast majority are people you can work with if they're not doing the Nazi thing right away. Perhaps they're just wayward. They need to be given a second chance in many cases until they appear to be recalcitrant. You try to work with them in general. So this is an enormous difference in the way that Hitler is able to 
relate to his people. That's because there is just one language. There are two religions, but the Catholics are very eager to show that they're good Germans as well and not really loyal to Rome. So you have a great deal of homogeneity in the German identity, the German language and, and German culture and traditions and history that they share, whereas, of course, Stalin is trying to bridge dozens of religions and, and languages and cultures, and uh, he can't really talk about getting to a homogenous race. So uh, so that, that sets up the the difference for the way that they are acting as politicians. Both of them rely, of course, on a cult of personality, but the big difference, I think, a, a major example of the difference is the way that Stalin and Hitler treated the churches. Stalin just made them in the archives or some other museums or something, the church buildings. People were simply routed and churches were shut down. This is something that, again, Hitler didn't do, not because he couldn't do it, but because he had in mind a role for the people of really wanted to influence other, something other than just their behavior. He wanted to change their minds. He thought he was good at this. And Mein Kampf, he writes how he, he was in Vienna and could change any Marxist he encountered. If he talked to them, he'd end up changing this person's mind. I think that's probably baloney, but uh, <laughs> uh, that's how he thought of himself. Right. I was going to say he didn't lack for wild self-confidence in his abilities. So. <laughs> right. Right. So he, he thinks he's a persuader and that he, this is what he's going to do. The idea of his war on the church is covered in another interview that I did, God and Churchill, with Sir Winston's great-grandson, Jonathan Sands, this idea of his war on the church, if people are interested in learning a little bit more on that. I know that sounds like just a casual thing, war on church. Really, it's more about this compromise. It's more about co-opting the message. Yeah. My guest is Professor Nathan Stoltzfus, author of Hitler's Compromises. Coercion and Consensus in Nazi Germany. He's also written several other books, isn't that right, about this era. You're drawn to World War II, and I like that you're drawn to it in a way that's trying to give us the real picture since we are so far away from it. You can follow him on Twitter at Nate underscore Stoltzfus. That's S-T-O-L-T-Z-F-U-S. Kirkus Review calls Hitler's compromises, quote, a lucid work of historical argumentation that succeeds in establishing compromise as a crucial instrument in Hitler's political arsenal, unquote. I like that word lucid because our image of history does tend to become clouded over time and by seeing movies and reading novels and fiction. And I mean, they have Nazis fighting zombies and living on the moon now. It's bound to seep into your brain, even if you know that it's just fiction. You... Talk about Hitler, especially after that failed coup, trying to follow what you call the legal course, or I guess what he looked at as the legal course, not only to win the election, but then to govern. So you don't think, compared to Stalin that we were talking about, Hitler trying to work within a legal framework, but this is another one of his compromises, another one of the tools, as Kirkus wrote there, isn't it? I think so. He really, first of all, was interested in being seen as legitimate. Another clue that he's not just interested in forcing people to behave like he wants them to, but that he wants real authority, real authority in the sense that he's not just forcing people to behave as he wants to, but that they're actually agreeing to be persuaded and that he is persuading them 
you write that Hitler viewed pogroms as emotional actions that disrupted the sense of security and order he wanted for the people, unquote. Obviously, he's talking about the German people there, the non-Jewish German citizens. Another comparison to Stalin, but you say that this idea led to the construction of the concentration camps to murder the Jewish population rather than just this idea of sending in the Einsatzgruppen and shooting people. And this was something. I didn't think that this was an element of it, but he's worried about the impact this is going to have on his Aryan race, his master race that he's trying to build in his, his National Socialist Germany. Explain this. Right, right. Let me talk first about the legal road to power that you ask about, and then about the pogroms and, and Hitler's preferred choices for dealing with what he called the Jewish problem. The legal way to power is very interesting, precisely because Hitler did not just want to grab the lever, levers of power and clobber everybody with them who wasn't doing exactly like he said. Once he got power, he continued to try to build his mass movement. And he didn't see any way to power, as he writes in Mein Kampf, other than being recognized as an authority. He writes that you can't just reach your hand into a briefcase, pull out a new constitution, wave it in the air and say, here, folks, we've got this now. <laughs> he had tried that in Munich at the Beer Hall Putsch. It didn't work. And he knew he had to build up recognition as an authority. So he set about doing that. And it turned out that this Weimar system with frequent elections and, and very fastidious ways of measuring which party did what and which leader was most popular was very well suited to his needs. And the police and the system itself protected the Nazi party as they went out. And after the coup, the SA, according to Hitler, was not supposed to be out in conspiracies. And uh, of course, they were there to respond with force to anybody who uh, attacked the Nazi party, but their main job was to be proselytizing. They were supposed to be convincing others to join Nazis. Now, the legal course was simply a course that played into Hitler's resolve to build a mass movement, to get a lot of people behind him, to make it look like he had the majority or actually to get a majority. And from there, as he writes in Mein Kampf, once you have a majority, a foundation of popular support, then you can begin to use force to stabilize that majority. You can begin to single out people on the fringes and make uh, examples of them. Uh, and in, in fact, that's what he did after taking power, attacked the communists ruthlessly and violently. But the fact was that there was a lot of anti-communist sentiment in Germany, and most people didn't want them to have another have a revolution in Germany like they had had in Moscow. The sentiment was extremely deep, so it was really popular, actually. Overall, it was not unpopular that Hitler introduced these camps to, in turn, communists. And, of course, the legal way was taking into account when he said that, changing the laws that fit national socialism. He he wanted to be legal, as far as I can tell, only in order to receive legitimacy, only to be seen as legitimate by the German people. And so this legal system had been in place since the 19th century for decades and decades, and he was just manipulating it for his own purposes. In the end, he said that law would become merely how the people acted. Once the people were Nazis, then they would act in ways that would preclude 
these outsiders from society. Now, in terms of his anti-Semitism, he had seen pogroms. He said that in 1919 already that pogroms don't work. We need, and from his perspective, to remove all Jews from Germany. The 1920 platform of the Nazis says Jews will not be part of German Reich. They don't belong. This is a racial construction, not a constitutional construction of the state. And he notes that in the past, programs simply haven't achieved this purpose of removing Jews from society. They stay. And so he's saying we've got to put aside this kind of emotional indulgence in destruction and sadism, as it, whatever it may have been, and deal with it in a systematic way to get every Jew who's in Germany out of the country. And in fact, I read in a trial of one of Eichmann's deputies, secretary there was saying that Eichmann instructed them that we don't hate the Jews in the sense that we have a job to do. It's a professionalization of this task where you don't allow your emotions to get in the way because that might flare into actions like slapping Jews in public. This got done, but it was supposed to be held to a minimum where people could believe that they were being sent off to the East to work camps. Once the war started and the of what we call the Holocaust got underway, the point, according to this and other sources, can be seen as the kind of professionalization of a task. Don't let emotions get in the way. And he had that concern for, I don't know if you'd call it concern, but as far as a cog in his machine, he didn't almost didn't want to wear them out. That probably makes him sound a little more dispassionate in the way that he looked at people. But he wanted the camps because he felt that that was more humane, not for the victims, but for the men who would be right. pulling the trigger. Right, right. There was that expression that he used in 1939 already, about concern for what was most humane. And this was the gas chamber. And of course, when he talked about that, it was nothing to do with the victims, but with this population, this precious and rather small relatively population of pure-blooded Germans, who, as he recognized, at least in his calculations, could be psychologically damaged. And this was an important part of why the Germans moved from wholesale shootings of hundreds of thousands up to a million Jews in 1941 to the gas chambers. It was, and of course, in the gas chambers, then the Jews themselves were made to do the dirty work of, you know, all the hands-on work that would have psychologically affected Nazis, perhaps. Of course, it seems that if you look at these new photos, especially this illustrates that the new photos of so-called Auschwitz album, you have Mengele there, Joseph Mengele smoking a cigarette, you have Nazis on break, you have Hess, the commandant, and they're just having a grand old time. And so the eventual goal of the Nazis was at least to have a class of people who could who could kill ruthlessly and attend the symphony in the same evening, who would do it without being psychologically soiled. And Himmler makes a speech at Posen 
late 1943, he says, uh, you know, we know what it's like to see hundreds of corpses in front of us and to not be affected by this. This is what makes us great. So they're trying to get to the point where they can carry out these murders without the being sullied psychologically. But here's where the politics comes in. They realize it can take time and they'll move in phases. Hitler had suffered on the Western Front and gone in and was treated. The doctor was killed mysteriously once Hitler starts his rise. But it's something maybe that he did understand, the idea of breaking under the strain of war. So mm. I guess that's another thing here. He's compromising. He's not trying to just force. He, you compare him to a master of jiu-jitsu, saying he doesn't need to match brute strength. If he runs into something hard, he's going to try to use it to vault over. He's going to try to adjust it to his own means. Yes, exactly. Jiu-Jitsu comes up only in one reference, as far as I know, and that's in the mid-20s when he's saying what how he wants the essay to practice and perform. He doesn't want them to be learning to use weapons as much as sports like boxing and jiu-jitsu. And I think both what those have in common is the wiliness. Of course, jiu-jitsu especially is where you use the strength of the opponent against the opponent with stepping out of the way and using balance. And so that definitely is Hitler. He wanted to reserve his resources whenever he could, realizing how grandiose his schemes were and nevertheless trying to reach them. Time is short, so I wanted to give you a chance to go back to the story you teased earlier. You said you wanted to get that in, uh, another example of compromise. Well, there are a couple that come to mind. There was one very striking case, Judge Kreisick, who was prominent in the confessing church. That's probably where he had most of his popular support, people who would definitely have noticed and been extremely upset if he had been carted off to a concentration camp. He was also a judge of great stature and respected, and he spoke out very directly against what the Nazis called euthanasia, that is a mercy killing of people they considered incurable. This was something that Judge Kreisick considered murder according to the laws, and he kept speaking out against it until the justice minister actually showed him a piece of paper signed by Hitler saying that this was now the practice. Kreisig said, well, this is not the way laws are made. We can't have a law made this way. I still am not going to send my people in my district off to be euthanized just because they have epilepsy or some other problem that the Nazis considered incurable. He had an incredible vado, and the Gestapo, of course, set about sending him to the camps, and he had wow. all the other enemies, and Hitler simply stepped in, intervened. Kreisig asked to retire, and Hitler allowed him to retire with his pension, I think. And so it was actually uh, Hitler taking Kreisig, this judge, from the claws of the Gestapo, probably because during the war he was concerned that you know, just like with Bishop Gollin, who spoke out against euthanasia, Bormann and others wanted to execute him, and, and Hitler refused. 
saying he could do that after the war. <laughs> Goebbels nice. explained why. <laughs> yeah, right. So that's also a part of a strategy. You know, Hitler doesn't just indulge his rage and his ideology at every point, but he says we're going to have to wait on that. I imagine that after the war, he wouldn't have had to have done that. His whole attempt was to get these church leaders with their huge flocks to actually get in line. And they did a tremendous service for Hitler in terms of the war. There was such nationalism in Germany that all of these bishops, with very few exceptions, I don't know if that many were really saying, you know, this is a, for, it's a Christian cause, sort of like a crusade where the Christian virtues of self-sacrifice and martyrdom are important here. And Gallen even said shortly after protesting euthanasia, he promised his Catholic men that they would have the rewards of a martyr in eternity for fighting the Bolsheviks. So there was a reason. So Hitler was being rewarded for trying to mobilize these big figures on on his side. On the one hand, Gallen protested euthanasia. He didn't execute him for that. But a little bit later, in a matter of weeks, and Gallen was calling for his parishioners to be fighting the war. So it was working out. You know, Hitler was making these calculations. Another example of compromise is mobilization of women for work during the war. When it came to mobilizing women for the service of the war in factories, the German dictatorship appeared much less confident than the countries it was fighting. The democracies, Britain and America, got their women involved right away and in factories conscripting them and uh, didn't lead to any unrest. But Hitler waited and dallied. It was partly because he wanted to fight war with women at home. He didn't want to get women unhappy. He had this image from 1918 in his mind, what he called 1918, World War I, when women were in bread riots. And he thought that Germany had lost World War I because the home front went weak in the knees. And he didn't want to repeat that. Now, after the Battle of Stalingrad, this epic battle that Germany lost, Joseph Goebbels, who wanted to conscript women into the workforce long before, finally convinced Hitler, okay, we're going to conscript women between 17 and 45, I think it was, to work in the arms industry and related industries on behalf of the war. Spare estimated that this would bring 6 million new people into the workforce, reliable people too, and not you know foreign workers. But it turned out that only about a million women complied the others made excuses or pulled strings with people they knew. So it was a huge flop in this armaments director, uh, Albert Speer's opinion, because it, there was no enforcement of this. This was actually a secret decree that Hitler issued in January of 1943, conscripting women. It already shows that he doesn't want to go public with it and put his authority on the line for good reason, apparently, because women uh, did not answer this call to conscription in his dictatorship like they did in the democracies. And the upshot was that there, in fact, was no enforcement from Berlin of Hitler's decree. And he wanted them at home, too, making the future citizens of his thousand-year Reich, too. That's, Hitler's compromises makes me relook at everything. So, <laughs> uh, That's an important point. Yeah, he had other reasons. He, wanted, he never did want to mobilize or conscript women, and he thought that heavy work would negatively affect their 
ability to bear children. I have one final question for you. We've experienced here Hitler looking at the German people and saying, what do they do? They follow laws. They want a democracy. They want those trappings. They follow the church. They So he tries to take over the way both of those are made, the laws of God and man. You conclude Hitler's compromises by writing, quote, there are various explanations of Hitler's march to power and why the Germans attended him to the gates of hell, unquote. We have just passed through an election season. People always want to throw around the Hitler name, throw the Nazi name around. I have said a couple of times on the show that, you know, go Google your favorite politician and see how many Nazi images you have. Never mind if you Google your least favorite politician, how many more you will find. <laughs> so in general terms, what do you hope readers will examine? I I looked at this book and I thought I already knew this. And we all say never again. And then on the other hand, we say we shouldn't ever call anybody Hitler or maybe any comparisons, certainly the lay person who only knows history through Seinfeld and the soup Nazis shouldn't be doing it. But from your perspective, what do you hope that not just readers, but fellow historians who pick up Hitler's compromises will take away from themselves as they look at politics, as they look at the tools that Hitler used here to seduce Germany? I think in terms of what Hitler represents, it's important to recognize that we can't draw from Hitler that brute force and terror is always going to win, that if you're losing, you just simply need to use more of the same brute force and terror. If you use enough, you will win. This is a um, kind of seductive idea that security can be guaranteed. I think that's the wrong image to take away from Hitler. In terms of societies, it seems to me important to realize that we are vulnerable, or at least that we can't be too complacent. We're not going to recreate history like Weimar. Things are so different now. Our politicians are on Twitter, and in the Third Reich, television hadn't even been invented yet. So our forms of communication, of course, have been revolutionized. And yet, there's a similar psychology where people are still attracted to a winner. If someone is willing to play the role like Hitler did of a once in a thousand years kind of a leader, there are people who are eager to believe that there are such people that all of these problems that are besetting them can be resolved that easily by supporting someone into power who will, of course, rule on their behalf and solve all of these difficult problems. That remains a temptation for all societies. And we see that if someone actually is supported and is supported in ever greater numbers, it becomes harder and harder for others not to go along with this bandwagon behavior. And of course, we don't have the crisis that the uh, Germans did in Weimar. They had an economic crisis far beyond this, but we can't measure a crisis simply in economic terms, but in terms of how people respond, of how many people think that things are so bad that something radical has to happen and the quicker the better. So there are people like that who think that nothing could be worse, it couldn't get any worse than it is now, who are willing to gamble everything to just throw things up in the air because whatever, however they come down, it's bound to be better. So those are kind of two different things. Some people out of crisis yearn for something 
different very quickly and others just out of youth perhaps of a sense of security want something utterly different just because they think it would be better or maybe fun to have something change quickly. Well, Nathan Stoltzfus, author of Hitler's Compromises, thank you for joining us today to flesh out the portrait of Hitler, Hitler the strategist, Hitler the jiu-jitsu master, Hitler the man with a plan here, not just your garden variety dictator, which I guess is why he was really able to take Germany to the gates of hell, as you put it. We aren't getting the accurate picture from movies, certainly not from sitcoms and even most other historical profiles. So thank you today. I'll say it again. I'm glad to be told that I have been getting it wrong in history. Hitler's compromises certainly gave me a fuller picture here of how Hitler was doing on the home front and what his vision was. Best of luck with the book, and I hope you have great luck with it. Thank you. It was so good to talk to you, Dean. I appreciate it. Again, the book is Hitler's Compromises, Coercion and Consensus in Nazi Germany. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even bookmark our URL off the banner ad on our homepage for all your online purchases. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase at no additional cost to you. Once again, thank you to Professor Nathan Stoltzfus for joining us and for fleshing out our understanding of the soft tools of persuasion that Adolf Hitler used to seduce one of the most cultured, advanced nations in the world and to lead along the people to build his evil vision for the future. Please remember to follow Professor Stoltzfus at Nate underscore Stoltzfus on Twitter. That's S-T-O-L-T-Z-F-U-S. And let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And remember, if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Those sure mean a lot. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. Confident that Russia was safely pigeonholed and that the democracies would not fight, the Nazis started singing their favorite theme song that all people of German blood belong to them. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.